This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. The Holy Gospel according to Mark 13, Mark 13, 1 through 8. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. They will all be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us. When will this be, and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? That Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he. And they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But this is the beginning of the birth pangs. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Well, humans are capable of building some incredible structures, right? From the Great Wall, China, to the pyramids, to the Taj Mahal, wondering what is the most impressive human-built structure that you have ever seen firsthand. Can't say Fort 393. It's nice, it's nice. But... Hoover Dam. The Hoover Dam, there you go. Yeah, so incredibly gigantic, yeah. I was going to say the Mackinac Bridge. Mackinac Bridge. Yeah, the Mackinac Bridge. Yeah. yeah, incredible. Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal. Wow. All right. There you go. Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Before fire. Yeah. Yeah. Cathedral in Barcelona. Cathedral in Barcelona. Yeah, some impressive stuff. I think for me, it maybe be the Blue Mosque in Istanbul, uh, which was a fifth, sixth century Christian church originally, and then over time uh, became a mosque, and it's just so huge. It is just incredibly large and beautiful and ornate. And maybe second to that, I'd say the Alhambra in Granada, Spain, a Moorish castle complex that is unbelievably beautiful, long, winding, so ornate, so much detail. And when we see things like that, it's just, it almost blows the mind that these things were made by human beings. And the ancient temple in Jerusalem was one of these kinds of structures. It was one of these kinds of structures. In fact, it had been rebuilt by Herod and in the ancient world was considered more or less to be one of the marvels of the world. And listen to what first century historian Josephus 
says about it. He says, now the outward face of the temple was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it turn their eyes away just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. So he's highlighting just certain parts of that temple were just plated with gold and in such a position that when the sun rose, it was like staring into the sun, that majestic and amazing. And then he says, but this temple also appeared to strangers when they were at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. For as to those parts of it that were not gilt or gold covered, they were exceedingly white. And of its stones, some of them were 45 cubits in length, five in height, and six in breadth. And so the temple would have been the most incredible human-built structure that anyone who was born in Galilee or Judea, such as Jesus or the disciples, had ever laid eyes on. Just one of those, like, wow things that you see. And you add to it its spiritual significance as the meeting place between God and humanity, and you have something that is foundational for one's understanding of the world for one's understanding of God, of humanity, of your place in it. It was the center around which everything else rotated and made sense. And so the disciples, as they're leaving the temple, marvel again at it. Wow, teacher, look at this thing. Look at these stones. Look at this building. It's so incredible. And Jesus responds with the unthinkable. Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another, they will all be thrown down. Peter was like, who invited Debbie Downer? <laughs> this, is, this is incredible. But those are the kind of words that Jesus utters that could get you killed. In fact, those very words will be used in his trial before the Sanhedrin when he's arrested a little bit later. And with these words, Jesus is blowing apart their view of the world. What he's saying is heretical, for one. And by repudiating the temple state, he's undermining the entire socio-symbolic world of Judaism. The world as they knew it wouldn't make sense without the temple. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is proposing. And it wouldn't be that far off from making such a claim on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. Right? unthinkable, crazy, would immediately put you on the FBI watch list. Unless you bring like a hundred or so friends and you have the support of the sitting president and you propose hanging the vice president. In that case, you, you, you get off scot free, but I digress. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus do this? Is he against Judaism, his own faith tradition? I don't think so. His objections, it seems, have been consistently based upon one criterion, the system's exploitation of the poor and the vulnerable. And so, one, as one scholar notes, he's warning his disciples against joining those who would wage a messianic war in defense of the temple. Right? There, sure, there are outside forces coming in, Rome and so on and so forth. Uh, but is it worth continuing to support a system which undermines the foundations of what it is we hold dear. And as they settle onto the Mount of Olives, 
the text says, so they move away from the temple, but now they have a, a view, and Jesus huddles up with the disciples, and, and, and they're asking for more. And so Jesus here uses apocalyptic language, which is a signal to us not to take it too literally, though unfortunately some do. But Jesus uses apocalyptic language to help them deconstruct their view of the temple-based world. And consider the dawn of a new one, one in which the powers of domination have been toppled. He's inviting them to imagine a whole new world. And so the question for us is, how can we translate this to our world today? Right? What structures do we consider immovable and unchangeable? And what injustices are those systems and structures upholding? And so I'd love to open it up for just a moment. What, uh, what are some of the biggest threats to human existence and human flourishing today as you see it? Climate, yeah. Yeah. It seems one of the most obvious, right? The state of the earth, the environment, the climate. Absolutely. What else? Yeah. Capitalism. Capitalism. There you go. That sounds heretical, though. So keep, that, keep that under wraps over there, Steve. Yeah, one of the things that drives the problems that we have with how we care for the earth and the change of climate and so on, right? Because we have these engines of market that need to just keep turning, keep growing, ever expanding, even though we live on a planet with limited resources. What else? Yeah, Bob? The uh, continued reality of racism. Yeah, continued reality of racism. Absolutely. Dualism? Dualism, okay. Do you have more on that? It's just divisive. Yeah, yeah, kind of over and against one or the other, a binary that we can say you're with us or you're against yeah. us kind of thinking. Absolutely. Yeah? Uh, big data and artificial intelligence. Okay. Yeah. Big data, artificial intelligence. I was reading about one uh, person, it's like a futurist kind of person, and and I think back in 2003, he wrote a book where he said, I give humanity about a 50-50 chance to last another 100 years. Just to lighten the mood a little. <laughs> but one of, one of the things he noted was our ability to destroy ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. We have created the means to wipe ourselves out. And with some of the, with the dualism noted, with the, you know, the lines we draw, with who's with us or who's against us, ugh. Yuck. Yuck. So there's a few things, right? There's a few things. We have another one? Yeah. Um, denominationalism. All right. And um, religious uh, points of view that uh, divide. Yeah, religious divisions, sure. Part of the wider problem of divisions. I'd love to think about a world where there are borders, you know, where we're just, we all belong to one planet and, you know, you can have your ID of planet Earth. You know, it's wishful thinking, but all these borders and then what's ours is not yours and we're going to fight you over it. 
that stuff drives me crazy. White privilege. White privilege, absolutely. Yeah, tying in with what Bob said, absolutely. The, the threats to worldwide democracy. Okay, the threats to democracy, absolutely. Well, I can't answer all these. We can't answer all these in the time we have left here, but there's a few things, right, that have us kind of anxious and, and wondering. And, of course, we tend often in our lives to think about the shorter term, right? How will I get through this month or this week or even just today? And we often think about organizations and institutions we're directly connected to. We might think about um, our job, uh, the company we work for or we own. We might think about a school or institution that we're connected to. We might think about our church. We might think about how will those things survive for the next five, 10, or 20 years, right? And that, those are all important, of course, but we also have to think bigger and wider and longer term. We have to consider how humanity itself will survive. And sometimes we've asked this question at pub theology gatherings, do you think humanity will survive in a, in a thousand years, 500 years, 100 years? Now this is a question I actually wasn't allowed to ask uh, for the first 30 or so years of my life because my theology precluded me from even that being something one would think of. Like, what do you mean, how could humanity not survive? Of course humanity survives. Humanity is the center of God's creation. God would never let humanity wipe itself out. Jesus will return before we ruin everything. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'll just say, now I'm not so sure that waiting for a divine rescue plan is what we're invited to do. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not. And so I think we are invited to create the future that we want to see. We are responsible for our own outcomes, and that involves hard, long-term thinking about the future. But as our words of integration and guidance reminded us, we're in such a state of flux and change, and that was written in 1970, mm -hmm. 50 years ago. Just think of what has transpired since then, like more than he could even imagine. And he was a futurist kind of person. Like there's so much change happening all the time that we really are just thinking about how do I get through Next week. The Iroquois Nation has a saying, which I know you've heard. In every deliberation, we must, con we must consider the impact on the seventh generation. Even if it requires having skin as thick as the bark of a pine. In every deliberation. The seventh generation, that's not seven years from now, or 14 years from now, or 21 years from now. If we consider 20 years or so to be a generation, that's like 140 years from now. Who of us thinks much at all in our day-to-day -day decisions about how it's going to impact 140 years from now? We don't often think that way. And of course, that's not the kind of thinking that gets anyone reelected to a two or four year term. Right? We want results now. We want change now. And we're not allowed often by our very systems to think that far into the future. I shared a photo on social media the other day, uh, perhaps you saw it, which showed a huge highway. I think maybe it was part of the Autobahn in Germany. Um, it was like this six-lane highway right alongside a waterfront area, a body of water in Dusseldorf, Germany. 
And so six lanes, and I think even on the side of that was another road running parallel. See this beautiful, potentially beautiful waterfront, but it's covered, paved over with tons and tons of concrete and automobiles, trucks, spitting out exhaust all day, every day. Well, at some point, folks who love and care about that city thought about what kind of impact, what kind of future they wanted to leave future generations. And underneath this image is a picture of that same spot just from a couple of years ago. And now that six lane highway is gone. And in its place is a green space where the photo shows people sunbathing, having a picnic, looking at the, the boats in the water. And instead of that six lane highway, there's now a much smaller pedestrian path lined with green shade trees. I mean, you wouldn't even think it's the same place, except you could see some of the buildings in the background. So you can tell it's the same city. It's incredible. That is thinking about the future. Well, I saw a graphic recently, I think one of you posted, that US carbon emissions per capita way outpaces that of our friends to the north in Canada or in Europe. Right? Our consumption-based style of living, going back to Steve's comment about capitalism, it's unsustainable and our country leads the way, unfortunately. Well, happily, there are folks trying to make things different. Folks at places like Congress for New Urbanism who have started something called Freeways Without Futures. I love that. Freeways Without Futures. And they highlight that there are no examples of a neighborhood that improved when a highway was cut through it, over it, or near it. One of their spokespersons put it this way, we've shown that when you take the highway out of the city, it gets better. It's that simple. And there are successful projects in places from Portland to Philadelphia and many places in between where the greatest highway infrastructure projects are projects of deconstruction. And this is happening. Not enough, but it is happening in places. And these communities are trading highways for boulevards, for connected streets, for pedestrian paths that create place and space for public transit, for pedestrians, for cycling, for nature of all things. And so we have to press for these changes from our city officials, our elected leaders, but we also have to look within to how am I living? How am I voting every day with what kind of future I want, with the purchases I make, the decisions I make, and so on? How can I be a part of the change that I want to see? Orrin Lyons, chief of the Onondaga Nation, says one of the first mandates given us as chiefs is to look ahead, to look ahead, to make sure that every decision we make relates to the welfare and well-being of the seventh generation to come. What about the seventh generation? Where are you taking them? What will they have? He says, every decision we make. As the disciples stare at the huge stones and impressive walls of the temple, Jesus imagines its deconstruction and something better 
in its place. And so we too must not be afraid to look at the systems, the structures, and the institutions that seem immovable, but are threatening our very survival. And we too must imagine a better way. The future of humanity and the planet we call home depends on it. Amen. Maybe so. Invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.